It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. I feel like the Church of Jesus Christ is on its heels right now. We're not on the offensive, but the defensive. We're not sharp, but dull. We're not readying for revival. We're just hoping for it. Hey, this is Eric. Before we venture into today's Daily Thunder message and get stirred up about historic revival returning to the church, I wanted to mention that we have added two additional week-long intensive trainings into our Ellerslie calendar, one in the late summer and one in the late fall time frame. For those of you that are unable to sneak away for our five-week training, these one-weekers are built just for you. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to learn more. Now, let's jump aboard an American aircraft carrier in the middle of the Pacific Ocean in May of 1942. The Japanese are heading toward Midway Island in huge numbers, and it's not looking good for the United States. Today's message is called Revival in the Pacific. I I tell you what, I, I... I stand in a certain degree of amazement, even though this is the 39th uh, installment in this series. I'm bewildered, even though I shouldn't be, by the fact that what I'm studying in World War II just uh, seems to parallel what is taking place either in my own soul or in the culture around us. And last night I sat down with, uh, we had a father-son gathering, and the theme was revival. And so we were listening to an old sermon by Duncan Campbell about the Hebrides revival uh, on the island of Lewis. And uh, the reason I've been stirred in that is Leslie was studying that to prepare for her set-apart conference. And so she's like, you really need to listen to this. So I go, well, do you think the guys would enjoy this? And though I, I have to acknowledge that his Scottish accent and the old, I think it was recorded in like the 50s, like wasn't the easiest to uh, decipher, but I tell you what, it was powerful. And so we spent a good deal of time last night praying as men. There, was, there were certain things that were moving inside of us. One was just a humbling, a, a, a desire for a repentance, a desire for an increase of the fear of God, a desire for action uh, in us as the body of Christ. It's the classic signals of revival that we are craving. It's, it's that which revival has always been. Revival has been taken and, and used in all sorts of different capacities now. We have these wild-eyed versions of revival uh, that involve like uh, angel feathers and like, what is it, like gold dust. Uh, and then we have a lot of emotion and feeling. That has, I mean, I am not at all interested in some fantastical thing. I am interested in God. And if God wants to do fantastic things, that's his business, which he oftentimes does in revival. But I don't want to manufacture, and I want to emphasize the word man in manufacture. I will, if what we want is something god factured, we want something that God does. And the only way for that to happen is we have to get out of the way. We have to humble ourselves. If it's get on our face, we get on our face. We allow the Spirit of God to take us, cleanse us, purge us. He starts with the church and works outward. This is a burden for me. This is something that I am craving right now. And so as a result, when you see this title, I don't know if you see the irony too, that the next morning I wake up and in my series, I have this portion of World War II, which is in 1942, which is where we've been in our, in our flow. 
that just happens to be like a revival. Uh, I, I know, revival in the Pacific, the Pacific Ocean is not the typical spot you're going to expect to see a revival, but there is. Now, you're going to have to accept the fact that I am putting the Axis powers as a symbol of evil. And, you know, there's certain things that I've done in the past few messages which could counteract that. I, I've been showing the, the fact that the the American mindset towards the Japanese is actually unhealthy and ungodly. And the way that the racial tensions in these things and the internment camps and uh, some of those different factors I've, I've played up and I've emphasized to bring out spiritual truths. However, in this one, I'm going to have to uh, utilize the, the Japanese as a symbol of that which is wrong and evil. And I'm so sorry to do that. I always feel bad. I mean, poor... Uh, Harper was born in Korea, which is, you know, right uh, you know, across uh, the water from Japan. And, you know, so I, I, I am always heavy-hearted when I do that. But when I do it to the Germans, you have to recognize I'm German. So I just recognize that there is something wrong in these countries. Their motivation is actually off. And it is a desire that is contrary to the kingdom of God. And so as a result, they're going to symbolize that for us to understand the spiritual realm, okay? So I'm really not trying to take a jab at any country, but that's just sort of how it works when you're talking about war. Uh, but revival in the Pacific. Uh, sorry, guys, my clicker is not on. I thought I turned it on. So May 1942, we're sort of creeping through 1942. I got to 1941, uh, and I've just slowed down. Uh, and I think it's like some gelatinous uh, season here. And mainly that's because the Japanese are going to enter the theater of war, and you're going to have a lot of uh, fur flying uh, because of that, starting in December 7th, 1941. Up until now, there's just a lot happening. Uh, and the entire landscape of the world is shifting. The Japanese are aggressively moving into position and into territory, and as a result, it's creating a crisis because the Pacific has always been dominated by the British colonies and uh, Australia, and, and, uh, and Jap Japan is now showing itself as a foe, and it is basically silencing China, and it is owning this territory, which is what I'm going to go into real quick. But I'm calling this the American Revival in the Pacific. Uh, Winston Churchill is going to make a, uh, a, a commentary on this. So I'm going to quote Winston Churchill here. Stirring events affecting the whole course of the war now occurred in the Pacific Ocean. By the end of March, that's 1942, the first phase of the Japanese war plan had achieved a success so complete that it surprised even its authors. Even Japan is surprised by how successful they've been. They are dominating the Pacific. The Pacific, most of us don't think about the Pacific. It's easier for us in World War II to think about the, the, the landscape of Europe. It's like, okay, I can, I can understand that. But the Pacific is just sort of this vast expanse. But it's very strategic, and there's a lot of important territory in there, and Japan is dominating it. Japan was master of Hong Kong, Siam, Malaya, Malaya, sorry, the, and nearly the whole of the immense island region forming the Dutch East Indies. Japanese troops were plunging deeply into Burma. In the Philippines, the Americans still fought on at Corregidor, but without hope of relief. So this is actually a drawing. I don't know if Winston Churchill put it together, but I got it out of Winston Churchill's uh, book on the Second World War. And it's laid out a little differently than a modern map would be as far as just how, how it flows. It's interesting to see how maps change over time. But same, same land structures. 
but you'll notice it sort of looks like a nose. I don't know if you can see it. It's the dark uh, black line in there, but it's, it sort of extends out of China and the top side uh, all the way around, and it just bubbles right above, uh, sort of like the nostrils right above Australia. It's sort of, sort of cool. It's like a nose, right? And that's the territory. You see Japan uh, up, well, I don't know if I have the, okay, I'm going to zoom in on this next slide. Japan's at the top middle, and you can see the island of Japan up there, Tokyo sort of sitting out the side of it. This is a, it's sort of like hand-drawn, hand-written. That's why it's, it's an interesting map. But what you're going to see is two lines. You're going to see a hard line. You're going to see a dotted line. The hard line is what Japan is now master of. By March of 1942, Japan is master of this territory. No longer is it just an island of Japan. They are literally in control of a good portion of the earth. Okay, this is a massive swing of power in the world. And so if you've ever played the game Axis and Allies, uh, this is key territory. You don't think about this territory until you play a game like Risk or, or Axis and Allies, and you're like, hey, I need that territory. And Japan has it, and they have it in, a, in strength. So then you're going to see that dotted line around the outer edge. That's what this message is about. It is a territory that Japan wasn't intending to get. This is actually their borders. This is what they wanted to get. They just didn't expect to get it so quick. So they ended up getting it quickly. Now they start to get greedy. They start to slobber with anticipation of how easy this has been. And so they're looking at that dotted line around the outer edge, which just brushes right along the top of Australia and loops around up towards Midway Island. They're ultimately after the Hawaiian Islands. They want to get to Pearl Harbor if they can. And so, but they never anticipated that they could accomplish this so fast. And so I'm going to stop right here. I'm going to say I'm going to create a parallel today between what is taking place in our country and the church. In other words, we have a massive movement against the church right now, and whether or not anyone even recognizes it. I mean, I, I'm sure there's plenty of people that I could talk to right now. The church is fine. We're fine on Zoom. We're fine with our drive-in church services. And I'm going to say, I'm going to puncture that balloon and say, no, you're not. This is not how the church functions. We do not function in a box we are built to go out and change the world. Instead, we're wearing masks and we're hiding six feet apart from people. We need to be engaging this world that is in a dire strait right now. They need the hope of the gospel and we just happen to have it. And so the church is on its haunches instead of in an aggressive position. And so what you're going to see in this, in this story, you're going to see America on its haunches. It is massively hit uh, hard. It tries to come in and help in the Philippines and it gets driven back. I mean, it is really a hard battle. The Japanese are fierce warriors and that is not expected uh, by, by, the, by the Americans. They were not expecting such a fierce battle as they got. So this is a shocker. And the same way we as the church sort of right now are a little, we have those Tweety birds around our, our head, doo -doo -doo -doo, tweeting, and we were not expecting this type of a hit. It took us uh, by surprise, what was it, mid-March, and suddenly we are like not able to function anymore. We don't even know how to function. We're, we're like mystified. We're, we're dizzy as the church. And that's exactly where America is in this, which is why it's so profound to see this story unfold. You have the strength of Japan, and they are, they are bloated with confidence right now. And then you have the weakness of the American naval uh, systems, because they are, Pearl Harbor was hit. That's how uh, this all starts. And the Japanese are going to take out, in the Pacific, the strength of naval power for the Americans. It's all part of the strategy, which is why they're, they're dominating. 
And so the church is in this same position where we need to rise up and have a revival. So I put on the map, the same map of Winston Churchill's, I put some stars. So you see the big star up at the top is Japan. And then you're going to see Hong Kong, Siam. You're going to see uh, these different ones that I've put in to sort of help you know the key locations where big battles have taken place. These are the spots where the stars are that Japan has literally said, we're taking that. And they did. It's like a knife through soft butter. So Winston Churchill continues here. Japanese exultation was at its zenith. Pride in their martial triumphs, which is their military triumphs, and confidence in their leadership was strengthened by the conviction that the Western powers had not the will to fight to the death. Already the Imperial Army stood on the frontiers so carefully chosen in their pre-war plans as the prudent limit of their advance. When they started, they said, this would be the wise boundary for us. We could contain this. But they're recognizing they're so able to take more territory, why wouldn't they? So Churchill continues, but now in the flush of victory, it seemed to the Japanese leaders that the fulfillment of their destiny had come. They must not be unworthy of it. These ideas arose not only from the natural temptations to which dazzling success exposes mortals, but from serious military reasoning. Whether it was wiser to organize their new perimeter thoroughly or by surging forward to gain greater depth for its defense seemed to them a balanced strategic problem. After deliberation in Tokyo, the more ambitious course was adopted. It was decided to extend the grasp outwards to include the Western Aleutians, Midway Islands, Samoa, Fiji, New Caledonia, and Port Moresby in southern New Guinea. This expansion would threaten Pearl Harbor, still the main American base. It would also, if maintained, sever direct communication between the United States and Australia. It would provide Japan with suitable bases from which to launch further attacks. Now, if we were all betting people right now, and we knew that the Japanese were intending to expand, and if you had to choose between, if you were just logical and you didn't have a you know, horse in the race, it's like, well, no, America's going to come back. You have no idea at this time how this war is going to play out. If you were a betting person, I'm going to say that very likely you're going to put all your money on Japan right now. Okay, There's no reason to doubt them. They are dominant in this theater. Dominant. I mean, nothing can stop them. Not one single attempt by the Americans has done anything but maybe have a neutral battle where they came out even. That's the best they've been able to do. And so this is not looking pretty. And the J Japan has more naval force. So therefore, it's like, how are you going to stop this? Okay, so stop, pause. Now let's go to 2020. America. If you're going to bet on the church and the church's ability right now to stand against this tidal wave of nonsense, this tidal wave of control in this culture of political correctness, who are you voting on? Because I tell you what, it seems like a tidal wave that is unstoppable. What can the church do? What could we possibly do? Well, that's part of why this story is so critical, to give us a new sense, a revived sense of vision and hope. We serve the living God. We serve the God that triumphs, and if his people will humble themselves and pray and seek his face, he will heal the land. That is a fact. So here's Winston Churchill, speaking of Japan. They never comprehended the latent might of the United States. Oh, see, if I could switch out that phrase to say, the devil and all of his cronies right now 
are failing to compute the fact that there is a latent might in the church of Jesus Christ. They thought still at this stage that Hitler's Germany would triumph in Europe. I mean, if you're a betting person, Hitler dominates all of Europe right now, and Japan dominates all of the Pacific. Are you going to go with Great Britain and the United States as the victors in this war? I mean, they are on their haunches. They felt in their veins, speaking to the Japanese, the surge of leading Asia forward to measureless conquests and their own glory. Thus, they were drawn into a gamble. Oh, this is good. This is good stuff, guys. So I'm going to call it the classic overplay. And there's a fascinating thought that most of us don't ever have flit through our brain. And that is, when we think about the devil, you know, we oftentimes, we, you know, he's the snarling, terrible creature, right, that has it in for us. But what we don't realize is that he's not God. He is not all-knowing. He's not all-seeing. He doesn't understand. He doesn't have all power. And our God does. Now, another thing, just to get out on the table, is the devil took with him one-third of the angelic host. That means two-thirds were left behind, which means just on paper, God has double the angelic powers. Okay, and that's just angels to demons, right? Double. Let alone God. God by himself, with the flit of his finger, could you know, destroy all the powers of darkness. This is who we serve, and we need to remember that afresh. But when you th understand how sin works, and I call it the classic overplay, but there is a weakness to the whole operation. And that is that Satan can't control the downward, it's sort of like a big boulder. And once it starts rolling, you can't really stop it. And that's how sin works in our life. And so let me go into that just a little. I'm gonna say sin has a strange problem. Isn't that a funny way of saying it? When we think of sin, we're like, yeah, it's a problem in and of itself. What do you mean it has a problem? You see, one of the goals of sin is to entomb you, to enslave you, and to inoculate you so you don't even try and get out of it. You are just stuck. But sin has a problem. Listen, it simply can't stop or slow its forward roll. So as a result, when you recognize as it begins to move in your life, if the devil could control the power of sin in that sense, he would want to slow it at certain times. It's like, no, 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 keep, keep him asleep, keep him asleep. Don't wake him up, don't wake him up. But he can't. He can't stop its forward roll. And as a result, what happens is humans awaken. And we're like, I'm miserable. I need to get out of this. And that is one of the funny, if you could say it that way, one of the funny attributes of sin is Satan can't control its forward progression. He can start it, he can sponsor it, but then its effects oftentimes can work against him. Isn't that a strange thing? How could sin work against the devil? It's because it accidentally, if you could say it that way, awakens the sinner to the point of their destitution. They're like, I am miserable. Now, you have to recognize the Holy Spirit has something to do with that. He's poking at the person at the same time going, how you doing there? <laughs> you still want more of this? In other words, the Holy Spirit is leveraging this unwieldy uh, forward role of sin to the awakening of the sinner. Not to the salvation yet, to the awakening so that they see their need, so that they see their destitution, so that they crave an escape. That's what I call a window. It's a window that opens, and it's a very oftentimes limited period of time where someone, because the devil's going to jump on that and say, there's no hope for you. You can't get out of this. At the same time, the Spirit of God wants to go through that window, and he wants to enter in and say, hey, 
Do you remember? Do you remember the truth that you knew when you were little? Or, hey, do you know that person over there? They ha- seem to have something. You should talk to them about it. In other words, there's an opportunity. So we're calling it the open window. I'm gonna see, you're going to see this open window in Hezekiah, the story of Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, in 2 Kings 18 and also chapter 19. It's an incredible story of the uh, Assyrians who were the most powerful nation on earth. For 100 years, they were undefeated. It's sort of like what we would say that the, the powers of political correctness today, the sway of the cultural zeitgeist or the, the spirit of the times uh, today is so powerful. And it seems like it's, you can't stop it. And that's the way the Assyrian army was. And little Judah, that's Hezekiah rules Judah, and uh, little Judah is gonna be overcome by this power, and they're all going to be encircled in the city of Jerusalem. So the entire nation of Judah that is remaining is now in the city of Jerusalem, walled in. Okay, this isn't looking pretty. And what's interesting is Hezekiah doesn't want to serve the king of Assyria. So he's, he has the right motive, but he's going about it the wrong way. And many of us do this too. We don't want to serve sin. It's interesting because King Sennacherib who is over the Assyrians, his name actually translates to mean sin. So as a result, sin is surrounding this little uh, city of of Jerusalem. And Hezekiah has the right belief system in the sense that he says, I shouldn't be serving that. But he doesn't know how to overcome it. He has tried in all sorts of different ways. He's tried to work out a negotiation with Egypt to come in and, and fight with them, and Egypt failed him. He has given money and tribute to it, uh, and th- it hasn't solved anything. And as a result, he's, he's at his last uh, straw right now. And here's what's funny, is Sennacherib is going to sort of yell over the wall at Hezekiah and say, and who are you, you Israelites or you Jews, to trust in this Jehovah God of yours? And I, I, the way I look at this is like once Hezekiah hears that, he's thinking, Jehovah God. Yeah, that's what we should be trusting. (laughs) So it's like sin itself stirs and awakens King Hezekiah, and he sends for the prophet Isaiah. And the prophet Isaiah speaks to Hezekiah and gives, and Hezekiah is humbling himself before this God, believing his word, and as a result, God wins the day. And so I'm just saying, this is the open window. And what was, who created it? Sin. It's a, it's a funny thing, but as sin encroaches, as sin grows, it creates an opportunity for us as the church to awaken and for a culture around us to hear. Because sin leads to death, guys, and none of us really want that. And so as a result, when that death begins to come upon us in a greater, more powerful way, it actually leads to a potential revival. Now, I, I agree, it could lead to just destruction. That, that's a reasonable thing, like the city of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, yeah, they were destroyed because of their sin. And we are deserving of it in America. That's a fact. But there are still those in this uh, city that believe. We believe that God has a purpose for this country. We believe that he wants to bring salvation to souls. What should we do? Well, we should allow this window, when it's opened, to stir us and blow a fresh breeze on our souls. So, last night I was listening to that audio on the Hebrides Revival by Duncan Campbell. And so the island of Lewis, 
which is where the Hebrides revival is going to unfold in November of 1949, so seven years after uh, what the events we're talking about in the Pacific right now, it's strangely parallel. This island is dead spiritually. And there is like this, these two elder women, one blind, one a hunchback, that actually feel a burden to, to see the youth of this culture. In the church, there's not one young person. In the entire island, there's not like one young person that's going to the church. And so they feel this burden to actually begin to pray. And so they mark out two nights during the week where they pray through the night with the pastor. And they begin to gather people together to pray. And guess what? Yeah, you got it. There's a window of opportunity that opens up. And the Spirit of God moves in that island, convicts these young people of their sin, and it's not even through preaching. That's what's amazing. One, one night they're in this dance, and it had nothing to do with God, and they're you know, living in their debauchery, and suddenly this something falls upon them, and they flee from the dance floor and run to the church at around 11 or midnight. And the church just happens to be meeting and praying, and so all these people come into the kingdom. And it wasn't like an evangelist was even out there preaching. It was the church praying. Now, I'm not saying that the preaching isn't important. I'm just saying that's extraordinary. In other words, there's a window of opportunity that is opened up at the most decadent point in the history of that island. God opens up a door. So we have Japan's Red Book. Now, speaking to the Americans... Uh, I mean, we have the Word of God. This is like an extraordinary thing. Okay, how are the Americans going to handle this? Same way we handle it. What do we have? We have the Word of God. Well, you know what they have? They have, through their spy network and their decoders, they have what's known as the Red Book. They have JN25, which is like a communication code system that the Japanese developed. It's their highest level code system. And guess who happens to have, the, uh, have broken it? The Americans, right before this movement into towards Midway Island. The, the Americans have it. Well, guess what we have? We know exactly what the enemy is up to. Isn't that an amazing thought? We have the word of God. Listen. So Paul the Apostle is speaking about forgiveness, and in this context of saying, of talking about forgive, he says, forgive lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. We know exactly where he's going to be. We know what he's moving into place, and as a result, we know how to combat it. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. We have been given everything we need, get this, to win this battle. We have it. And we've been given the red book. It's like God's handing it to us. These are the uh, military maneuvers of the enemy. If you read Nehemiah, you can break Nehemiah into nine key demonic strategies against the soul. You can. I call them the nine lies. It's profound. And he uses the same things in every generation. Sort of like he lacks creativity. And so God exposes how he works. He's like, yeah, this is how sin works. This is how the devil works. This is where he's going to be. He's going to bring in his naval uh, movements along this side. He's headed towards Midway Island. So here's what you should do. You should humble yourself. Pray and seek my face. <laughs> you should get into position to deliver the gospel to the nations. Guys, you are the vehicle. You are the carriers. So, and we need to remember how the battle works. It's interesting when, as Christians, the way that we 
think through a battle, like the way we're dealing with our, whether it's the media today, whether it's the political realm of today, we oftentimes think of rallies or picketing petitions, and I'm not saying those don't have a value, okay? I think they do have a place. However, what you're going to see is right at this juncture in World War II, there is going to be a shift of how battle works. Sort of like when you see going from the Old Testament to the New Testament, it's going to go from physical warfare into spiritual warfare. David fought with swords, slings, shields, armor. This was normal back then, and it was actually what God used. God used physical warfare to actually accomplish his purposes, as strange as that might sound. In the New Testament, Paul is going to go out of his way to say, oh, it shifted, guys. Don't go back to the old. We don't fight with the same tools that the world fights. We actually approach this very different. And that's actually important for us to remember right now as the church. Because for us, we have a tendency to default back to, if we could say it, Old Testament mechanisms. Because it's not that they're bad. It's not that all of it is, is wrong. It's just that it's not the more right way of doing it. There's a correct way of doing it that actually accomplishes something. If you've been given weapons of warfare, they aren't physical swords and physical shields. They're spiritual ones. So when you go back to physical swords and shields, you're actually missing the power of God to work in this generation. And so that's why I'm going to bring up right at this point in the battle, in May of 1942, actually right before this, because there's going to be a battle right before Midway, that is actually going to be a shift. It's the first time in naval history that the battle is going to shift, and it's never happened this way. Usually in naval battles, I mean, just, just think this through. It's ship shooting at ship. I mean, we've, we've seen some of those old movies, you know, where they get close and they turn sideways. This isn't like that. These are, this is a different form of naval battle. It's really cool. And it's, aircraft carriers that are going to position into place with airplanes all over them. And the airplanes are going to go up and <laughs> it's a battle in the air. Isn't that interesting? Instead of a physical battle on the ground, it's a battle in the air. And so we're going to see a shift in this exact time. And this is, this is why when we're talking about a revival in the Pacific, or for our sake, a revival in this nation, we have to remember these things. First of all, we have the Red Book. We have the enemy's schemes. It's exposed in the word of God. We have a tactical maneuver from our commander in chief of exactly what to do. We know the position we need to take. And then he says, pause. Remember, your battle is different. We're gonna go into this battle with our carriers, with our aircraft carriers. We're not going in with our battleships the way we have in the past. We're going in with our carriers and we're gonna use our air force to take them down. We're gonna do this battle in the air. So we need to remember how the battle works. Ephesians 6, 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. We're gonna fight this battle in the air. Isn't that just an incredible thought that here we are in the flow of World War II and it parallels so much with what we're going on, what's going on here. We are in the midst of a significant battle and we as the church need to awaken to that. We don't feel it like other countries are feeling it right now. And that's one of the reasons we can so easily fall to sleep. If you're in India and you live hand to mouth, this is a serious issue. 
and you don't even have food. If you're in northern Africa and you have a locust plague, you're seeing your entire crop and all of your food source for all of a northern portion of Africa gone because of locust. That's real stuff. That affects people and gets them on their knees really quick. For us, it's not happening so quick. We know that something's wrong, but we can't quite figure out what it is. We know that something's off in our culture and we don't agree with it, but we don't feel like we can do anything about it. So we're sitting there viewing it through a television screen or a computer monitor instead of engaging in this battle in the air. We actually have the ability to shoot off our planes and to fight this battle. We can actually make a difference in this. We don't need to have a battleship up close. We actually have the carrier. We need to use it. So introducing the carrier. Uh, this is great, guys. Look at I even put a picture for you. Isn't that just great? Now, that's probably not a World War II one, but it's, that's pretty cool. And to me, this is like the church right here. It's like, God, we can do this better. And he goes, yes. You see, first of all, I've given you something better than the old-timey battleships. I've given you an entire Air Force squadron. I've given you weapons of warfare that can take down this, up to this point, this unstoppable Japanese force in the Pacific. I've given you everything you need, and I've also given you the Red Book. Okay, guys, I've supplied you with everything you need for life and godliness to win this battle, to take back this territory. So, are we going to use it? So listen to the brief description of an aircraft carrier. I got this out of Wikipedia, so I am not going to brag about doing some deep research on aircraft carriers. A warship that serves as a seagoing airbase, equipped with a full-length flight deck and facilities for carrying, arming, deploying, and recovering aircraft. Did I just describe the church, or am I imagining things? It, let me read it again, just so you guys can enjoy this. A warship that serves as a seagoing airbase, it's mobile. It goes where it needs to go. It, it does what it needs to do all over the world. It is not just localized to one place. It is able to go anywhere in the world and function. A warship that serves as a seagoing airbase equipped with a full-length flight deck and facilities for carrying, arming, deploying, and recovering aircraft. Typically, it is the capital ship of a fleet as it allows a naval force to project air power worldwide without depending on local bases for staging aircraft operations. This is something very, very special, an invention that is going to change the course of history and actually it's going to alter the course of the war in World War II. This battle, which, which I haven't covered yet, which I'm not going to get into today, the Battle of Midway, is going to be the change of World War II. It's going to alter the Pacific theater. And up to this point, I think most of us just forget how dire it was. In May of 1942, the Americans on paper have no hope of maintaining the Pacific. And Hawaii is next, and then it's going to be California. In other words, the Japanese are coming, guys. And there's no way we can stop them. After Pearl Harbor, we're limited on our resource. We lost a lot of our naval power. And Japan has proven unstoppable up to this point. However, the Americans have something. They have Japanese, the Japanese Red Book. They know exactly, they can break the code and they know exactly where the Japanese are going to be. And they're gonna take a lesser naval power 
and they are going to play the same game back and they are going to fool the Japanese. And though they look weaker on paper, because they understand the battle, they are going to win it in the air and destroy the Japanese naval forces and the Japanese will never recover from what they're going to lose in the Battle of Midway. That's pretty cool. We are in that exact same juncture of history right now. We look weaker on paper. If you're a betting person, you're not going with the church right now. You're going to say, you know what, they're not organized enough. They don't have it together, and they don't understand the power of prayer. They're not in position to do this. I get that. However, America was not really ready for war. They had never really been in something like this before. And yet, they are going to be thrust into a situation that even though they are not perfected yet, they're going to get stronger and stronger and stronger as the war is going to progress. Because they're not, they're not a war power. They're an island, you know, if you want to say it that way. They're, they want to stay at peace with the world. Now they need to get at it. Once Pearl Harbor is bombed on December 1st of 1941, they have to get going. And so even though they feel a little off balance, sort of like we do as the church, and they don't feel ready for the grand epic warfare that they're in, God has given them everything they need to actually turn the tide and to win this with the tools that he has supplied them. And that's the way we are as a church right now. Father, show us how to use prayer right now. We need a revival, Lord Jesus, in the church. We need to understand how to appropriate our time, how to gather together rightly, how to work together as the body, how to go after this culture aggressively, Lord Jesus, we need wisdom right now. We need the red book. We need to understand the devil's movements and we need to understand the weapons of warfare that are mighty. Please instruct us and teach us, Lord Jesus. We submit to you with expectation. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. And our weekend service is streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.